Praise God. It's been a joy this weekend to see the Lord move in the hearts of so many and seeing students um, worship with reckless abandon um, to make much of Jesus. It's been very sweet. And I'll share a quick um, win with you. It's very, very personal. So... um, the Lord has graciously given Christy and I five children, um, two of whom were born in Ethiopia, uh, two biological sons, and then a little girl from China. And Christy's been teaching this weekend, and I've been preaching, and so we've kind kind of hodgepodging childcare and making sure everything covered. And um, last night, uh, she knew what I was preaching on, and so she uh, had the kids stay behind, and they sat there in the back, and I preached. And I got home uh, late last night, and I was making sure the kids were in bed, praying with them, as I usually do, and my son, uh, Aiden, said, Dad, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, what's going on, buddy? And he said, he said, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And uh, he's 12, and we've been praying diligently for him, and Last night, I walked him through the gospel, and he prayed to receive Christ, and my heart is full. (laughs) The Lord has been so kind, and it's not to us. It belongs to glory. It's to him. And praise God, I thank him for our church, because each and every one of you play a role and seeing children and teenagers come to faith in Jesus. You pray for me, and thank you for praying for me. You pray for my family. You pray for my children. Uh, you teach my children in vacation Bible school, in life groups. You encourage them in the hallways. You love them in the community. And I am just the most blessed pastor who gets to shepherd the best church in the whole wide world. I'm a little biased, but it's still true. It's remarkable to think about the creator of the cosmos, the sovereign Lord of the world, the one who knows the number of snowflakes on top of Kilimanjaro, the one who knows the number of hairs on every Tibetan yak, the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power, the king of the world is interested in you. He made you. He loves you. He cares for you. And he invites you and he invites me into a personal relationship with himself. It's not a relationship based upon fear. It's not a relationship based upon guilt. It's not a relationship based upon shame or coercion. It's a relationship based upon love. God loves you. And He loves you so much that he proves it through his one and only son who gives you and he gives me a summons, a call, a command to love him back. And in Matthew 22, we see Jesus declaring that we are to love God and we are to love neighbor. That is the greatest command. Let me show you. Please grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew 22. 
Last week, we saw Jesus take his disciples up on a mountain in Galilee in which he gave them the task that they were to give, them, give their lives to. He said in Matthew 28, verse 18 and following, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Last week, we saw where Jesus gave us the Great Commission. What we're going to see this morning is that now we see Jesus giving us the Great Commandments. And in Matthew 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's his triumphal entry. He's in the final uh, week of his life before he goes to the cross on Good Friday and gives his life as a ransom for many. That week, he cleansed the temple of the money changers who were trying to turn a prophet in God's name in the temple. We see Jesus who performed miracles. And while in the temple, Jesus taught truth about the kingdom. And yet in his teaching, Jesus intentionally provoked Jewish religious leaders as he preached the truth. Many of these religious leaders hated Jesus because, in part, the people loved him. They, they revered Jesus. They, the crowds would flock to Jesus. They also hated him because he saw through their hypocrisy and he called them on it. Jesus also undercut the validity of their false teachings and their man-made traditions. Now, the religious leaders were divided into two primary groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, both groups revered the law of Moses. Both groups had political power. Both groups were part of the Sanhedrin, which is the 70-member Supreme Court of Israel. Now, the Pharisees, they were the conservatives. They loved the Old Testament law. They memorized it. But sadly, they added their own human laws and traditions on top of God's laws. Now, they couldn't keep all of these laws, but they expected everybody else to. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the liberals. They rejected the resurrection. They rejected the reality of angels. They rejected the afterlife. They rejected the existence of angels. The Sadducees were more concerned with politics than with religion. So they mostly ignored Jesus until they began to fear that he might upset their peace and their relationship with Rome. You see, these two religious groups could not stand each other, but they had a common enemy, Jesus. And so in Matthew 22, we see these two groups decide to unite together. And kind of like a WWE tag team wrestling event, they tried to pin Jesus down with hard questions. If they could just trick Jesus, if they could just, verse 15, trip him up in his words, then they could expose him as a false prophet, arrest him, and kill him. The Pharisees go first, and they ask Jesus about paying taxes to the government. Jesus' answer is, presented with such authority and clarity that they responded, verse 22, they heard this and were amazed. Then it was the Sadducees' turn, and they asked Jesus a question about marriage and the resurrection, which they don't even believe in. And Jesus answers with such authority and clarity that verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Then it was the Pharisees' turn again to step back in and try and pin Jesus down. And in Matthew 22, verse 34, the Holy Scripture says this. 
When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Notice in the text that the Pharisees, they had an expert in the law ask Jesus this question. Now, these are the sharpest minds in Israel. These are the men who were trained in debate. They knew the scriptures. But what they didn't realize is they were talking to the one whom the scriptures were pointing to. You see, the question they asked Jesus is something that had been debated for centuries. Which command in the Old Testament is the greatest? See, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. And so if Jesus picked just one, then they could just discredit his teaching. So Jesus responds to this expert by quoting Scripture. He points to a passage of Scripture that faithful Jews would quote twice a day. It was called the Shema. The word Shema means to hear. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses records, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. So when Jesus is being interrogated by the Pharisees about the greatest commandment, he points them back to the scriptures. He points them back to 1,400 years earlier when God gave the law to Moses in a statement that these Pharisees had already quoted earlier in the day. Maybe you're a new believer. And you're wondering, how do I relate with Jesus? What does this relationship look like? Or maybe you're a seasoned believer. You've been following Jesus for a long time. And maybe you've forgotten just this simple command of Jesus. To love the Lord your God with all you got. So what what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is he driving home here in the text? Let me show you these three truths. I want you to see first that following Jesus means that you love Jesus passionately. Verse 37, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Indeed, the command that Jesus gives is to love. To love God means you take pleasure in him. You prize him above all things. Now, to love Jesus passionately, this is not just an emotion, although that is part of it. But it's a deep-rooted conviction in your heart saying, I am going to love, I am going to honor, I'm going to celebrate, I'm going to give my best affections and devotion to Jesus. It's deep within you saying, Jesus is my greatest love. Now, as you all know, man, I love my kids. I mean, all five of them, man, they're, they're awesome, and I care for them so deeply. But I remind them regularly, there is someone whom I love more than you, and her name is Christy. And so if there's ever a time in which they try to pin me and Christy against each other, I remind them, please remember there's coming a day in which you move out. 
She's staying here with me. But even in my love for my wife, whom I love with all my heart, there is still a greater love. There is a greater devotion to someone else. And here Jesus is laying before you and laying before me who our greatest love is to be towards. And it's to the Lord our God. Jesus is to be our greatest love and it's not even close in comparing our earthly relationships to anyone else. You see, all earthly relationships, all of our greatest treasures, all of our possessions, all this world has to offer must pale in comparison to our devotion and love for Jesus. And what God wants most from you is for you to love him passionately, to honor him and to see him for who he is and say, God, you are the one whom I love more than anyone else or anything else in this world. And he wants you to lose, to, to choose him, to choose to love him because that's what love is. Because love is not something you force. Love is not something that you coerce someone into doing. True love comes from the heart, okay? Well, then how in the world can we choose to love God when our sin and our flesh have no desire for him? See, only if God could do something in such a way that could compel us to love him. Only God could take those whose hearts are turned away from him. He must act to turn our hearts towards him. And he does so through the work of his son. You see, there is only one who has ever loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And his name is Jesus. He alone is the one who has always loved God with all that he has. And so this task, this call that Jesus is placing upon us here in the text, this can feel like a weight, like a burden upon us, like this is an even greater law that we have to accomplish if it's something that we have to do in and of ourselves on our own. But you see, the great commandment is not something that you are forced to do. Rather, you are compelled to do it because the Holy Spirit changes your heart. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see what God has done through his son Jesus at the cross, it is then that you're compelled to love him. You see the most wonderful act of love where God sends his son, the king of the world, to come and die for peasants, to come and give his life for sinners, to come and lay down his life for those who reject him. A God who is so motivated by love and display his love for creation by giving his one and only son. And so when you hear the gospel, when you hear the good news of a crucified and risen king and what he did for you through his death and resurrection, it's then that you say yes. I love you more than anything else in this world. You see, the gospel is what compels us to love the Lord our God. We love him because he first loved us. And he proves it through his one and only son, Jesus. So God in the gospel calls us to treasure him and to love him above all. And now it's because of Jesus that we have a personal relationship 
with the one who knows all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who gives us life and breath. Well, preacher, how, how much am I to love him? Like, is there supposed to be a certain level of intensity? Yeah. Look at verse 37. The text says, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Underline that, the word all there. It's there three times. This is a love with total commitment. It's with everything you got. It's over the top kind of love. And it's not a love that you try to muster up in your own strength. You can't pull up the bootstraps on this kind of love. It's a love that says, I'm looking at what God has done for me and his son, and now I am compelled to love him back. I'm amazed by how he has ransomed me and he has saved me from the dominion of darkness. I was headed for hell, but Jesus came and he rescued me. He ransomed me. He paid the price so that I could be set free. Oh, what love he has for me. And so now by the power of the Spirit, I love him back. It's an over-the-top, intense love in which you are passionate for your love for him. So we love him with all of our heart, but we also love him, verse 37, with all of our soul. That word for soul, it means the being of the whole person. It's the eternal self in you that lives forever. You see, the soul was made by God, and your soul is eternal. We see where our soul was initiated, and it began at creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being, a living soul. So when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your soul, he means to love him with your entirety, with your whole being. Now, can this, does it matter how much we love him? Yeah, it does matter. Jesus rebuked the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He said, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. If a believer's zeal for Jesus is waning, if a church's spiritual temperature is tepid, if a denomination grows indifferent in their devotion, Jesus compares you to his vomit. He rejects it. It's a love that God's calling us towards where it's all-consuming, saying, Jesus, you are my best, you are my all, and you are higher and sweeter and greater than anything that this world could ever offer to me. So my question to you this morning is, do you love Jesus more today than you did a year ago? Do you find your love for Jesus being ever-increasing? If not, this morning, repent. Come back to him and say, Jesus, I... I want to come back to this loving relationship. Uh, it's become overcomplicated. I've allowed sin and temptation and selfishness and pride to creep into our relationship. And Lord, I don't want that anymore. I want to return back to my first love. And so Lord, I want an ever-increasing love for you. Would you so do that in my heart? And that is a prayer that Jesus would love to answer. So number one, we love Jesus passionately. But number two, we think biblically. We think biblically. Verse 37, he says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. You see, the love we have for the Lord is not just with our emotions, not just with our being, but it's with our minds. That word for mind, it means to think deeply, 
to reason deeply. And the deeper that you think on God, the more you love him. Now there's lots of people who think on God based upon their own feelings or their own opinions or their own understandings. Well, how do we know if what we're thinking about God is true? The answer is found in the Bible. Scripture is where we learn about who he is and what he is like and how he relates with us. Anyone who makes a God apart from how God has revealed himself in Scripture is a false God. It's an idol. Our culture is filled with idols in which people will make up a God that sounds good to them. My God would never send people to hell. My God would never act like that. That's right, he wouldn't because he doesn't exist. There is one God and he has revealed himself through his word. And if you try to concoct what God is like apart from scripture, you are forming a God who in the end will be a reflection of yourself. See, your, your opinion about who God is and what he is like, it does not matter. My opinion about what God is like, it does not matter. It matters what is true. And he reveals himself through his word. This is why a biblical worldview matters. That you love God with your mind means that you think biblically. You allow the scriptures to govern over how you think about God and how you view the world. You see, the way that you understand the Bible affects all of life and doctrine from the way you view politics, logic, science, math, child rearing, money, sex, finances, culture, entertainment, work, school, friendships, marriage, law and order, creation, and even how you view yourself. Everything must go through the filter of Scripture. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4.8. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, Whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We allow what goes through our mind must go through the filter of how God has revealed himself in his word. Have you ever admired someone from afar, but the more you got to know them, the less you liked them? I remember when I was in high school, there was this really popular athlete at my school, and I thought, man, he's the cat's pajamas. Like, he's the, he's the real deal. I need to go hang out with this guy. And so as I got to watch him from a distance, I thought, he's good at sports, he's pretty good looking, the girls like him, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to hang out with him. But once I started hanging out with him, I was like, you're not a good dude. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. I, I don't respect you. May I say to you, that's not how it works with Jesus. The closer you get with Jesus, the more you love him. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you respect him. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you want to be with him. You see, the better you know Jesus, the more you love Jesus. The closer you grow in your relationship with him, your love continues to grow. And the more you know him, the more you love him. And the better you know him, the more you want to be with him. And the better you know him, the deeper your worship will be of him. 
You see, to think biblically means we're gonna love the Lord with our minds. We're gonna think deeply on God. We're gonna reason and we're gonna think about who he is and what he is like. To think biblically means you're not gonna think first with your emotions because your emotions will lie to you. It means that you don't think first according to popularity because the court of public opinion is always changing. It means you don't think first according to ungodly friends because they're, they're fools. You think first according to scripture for this is the path of life. Can I speak to the older generation for a moment? A concern that I have is that for many of you, you're allowing national news to disciple you better than the scriptures. If you're allowing your television to be on for hours about what's happening in our world, and you're allowing these talking heads on TV to tell you about how you need to understand the world more than you allow the scriptures to inform how you are to interpret the world, you're being discipled by the world. You're allowing your mind to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 and 2, he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allowing your mind to be purged of thinking like the world, and indeed we want to think the mind of Christ. And how do we think the mind of Christ? How do we love the Lord our God with all of our mind? It's by thinking biblically. And so I want to put before you a challenge. A challenge, I'm calling it the one-to-one challenge. For this week, for every minute that you're on TV or social media, I want you to match it and spend one minute reading scripture. And so if you're reading, uh, if you spend about an, an hour a day on social media or TV or whatever it is, you're balancing that out with an hour of scripture reading. Balance it out because you've got to make sure that you understand what's happening through the world, not through the opinions of those on the TV screen or those who you're scrolling through. You're, you're interpreting the world through the filter of Scripture. You're thinking God's thoughts and allowing Him to be the one who governs over the way you think. You renew your mind with the Word of God. So following Jesus means that you love Jesus passionately. Number two, you think biblically. And number three, you live missionally. Verse 39, Jesus says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, 18 here. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's shocking how simple that Jesus is making it. And yet it's startling in our world how powerless we are to obey this. The command is to, to love God with all you got, and then you prove that love by how you love your neighbor. In 1 John 4, 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. You see, the evidence of your love for Jesus is seen in how you love people. If you talk a big game, you talk about how much you love God, 
and yet you gossip about people at the office water cooler. You send text messages that are slandering other people. If you get on social media and you blast whomever you want to, if you send scathing emails and yet you say you love God, here John is saying you're a liar. The truth is not in you. You can't say you love God and hate your neighbor. Those are incompatible. In fact, the evidence of your love for God is seen in how you love your neighbor. So the question is, do you reveal your love for God in how you love other people in your life? The way you speak to and about your spouse. Students, the way that you talk to your parents. The way that you talk to your siblings. The way that you follow the leadership of those at work? Do you reveal a genuine, authentic love for people out of an overflow of love that you have for God? You see, ultimately, love for God leads to love for people. And if you genuinely love people, hear me on this, you share the gospel with them. We want to see our neighbor treasure Jesus above all things. We want to see people come to know Christ This is the motivation of loving our neighbor. The most loving thing that you can do is to point people to Jesus. The most loving act as a Christ follower is to share the gospel and invite people to believe. That's the most loving thing that you can do is share the gospel with your neighbor. Tell them about Jesus and invite them to believe upon him. And this is, this is, Jesus is keeping this awfully simple. Like he, he's, he's not overcomplicating. He says, this is, the, this is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is, if you do this, this is what the entire Old Testament is driving you to do. To love the Lord your God with all you got. And to love your neighbor as yourself. But you see, we can't do it on our own. We can't love God in and of ourselves. We need help. So God sends his Holy Spirit who empowers us and enables us to love the Lord right back. Paul says it like this in Romans 5.5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the Holy Spirit is driving you to Jesus, the perfect display of God's love who goes to the cross and gives his life so that in him and through him, you now have a love for the one who made you and knows you and calls you by name. This leads us to our impact point. It's this, is to, we are to love Jesus with all you got. Then we show and tell his love to the world. We display before a watching world what God is like. And God is love. And whoever lives in love, God lives in him. And this is what we display with our life. As we show the world the power of the gospel of a crucified and risen Savior who shows us what love is by giving his life as a ransom.